The church is a mystery. That's what we hear today as we continue our study of Ephesians chapter 2 and head into chapter 3. But what does that mean? Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'm so glad that you're with us for another great study in God's Word. Now, in just a minute, our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, is going to explain how the church is a mystery and so much more. But first, let's hear from fellow passengers who listen to Through the Bible in African Portuguese. Here's a listener from Guinea-Bissau who writes this. I am new to your program and believe it is important in my country. God has been good to us. My wife was sick for a few days, and I thought she was going to die. A friend suggested we listen, and in our moments of discouragement, we were comforted by your messages. There is no comfort like God's comfort. Thank you. Next, we hear from a young man who asks us to pray. I have been very depressed. Nothing was of any value to me. I have found some meaning for my existence in God's word. Please pray for me. And then here's another request. This is from a desperate mother. I've suffered many abuses from my husband. We are from a Muslim background, but I find strength in your teaching. My children and I are listening to the Word of God daily. Please pray as we would like to become believers, but have to keep it a secret. And then another listener calls us to say this. I was lost. I thank God for this program which God used to save me. I was never interested in spiritual matters, and my life was a mess. Through the Bible was able to redirect my thinking, and today I am sure that if I die, I will be with Jesus in heaven, because I have asked him to save me by his blood and forgive my sins. Thank you very much. Please keep teaching, and I will keep listening. And then we've got a final note. This comes from a listener actually asking for advice. I'm a member of a church, but the teaching recently has made me uncomfortable. I listen to Through the Bible daily, and when I try to talk to my minister, he does not listen. Last month, I told him about my concerns and again asked him to listen to your programs, but he replied saying, your program is not biblical and forbid me from taking communion. What should I do? I know that I did not sin by suggesting that to him. Wow. You know, so many real questions and needs from those who sit with us in the Bible bus in Africa. What a comfort that we can take all of these needs directly to the Father in prayer who gives wisdom to anyone who asks. If you'd like to join us as we intercede for listeners like these and our ministry partners who answer their letters and phone calls, emails, and social networking posts, sign up for our World Prayer Team today at ttb.org. Now, as our partner in prayer, you'll receive a daily email with specific prompts and stories of God at work reaching His people with His Word. And it's such a privilege to play a small part together. So I hope that you're going to join us if you haven't already done so. Again, the address is ttb.org forward slash pray. Now let's give this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we know that no human effort can build your church. It's only by your grace and your spirit that people are brought together as your body on this earth. So together, may we glorify you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our study of Ephesians 2 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We want to conclude this very wonderful second chapter, and you will note that I went over rather hurriedly verses 14 and 17 last time. And I want to just mention one or two things about that, because what he's saying here is that the Lord Jesus Christ, he's our peace, that is, the peace for both Jew and Gentile, for the contrast here is between them. And he broke down the middle wall of the fence, that is, the partition, the enmity that was between the two. And he's made now a new man, put us together in Christ, and made peace. That is, we have peace with God. We should have with each other. 
that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. God's work of reconciliation is already completed. He's ready to receive you if you are ready to come. And therefore, the message that goes out is, be ye reconciled to God. And if you will be, then that brings you into a new body, a body of believers, and doesn't make any difference who they are, Jew or Gentile, doesn't make any difference about the color of their skin. They may be white, they may be brown, they may be red, they may be black, but that doesn't make any difference. If they're in Christ, we're made one new man, and we should have peace. Now, you see, the emphasis in this passage is upon the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only made peace by the cross, but those who trust him are placed in him, and they become a new man now. And the contrast, of course, here, as we've indicated, is between Jew and Gentile. But God had made a difference originally by separating the Jew from the nations. Now, that difference led to spiritual pride, actually, on the part of the Jew. And ultimate, there was hatred between Jew and Gentile. When a Jew and a Gentile are placed in Christ, there's peace. Not only because of the new position, but because something new has come into existence. And Paul identifies this as a new man in Christ. We're something new. So that Paul had said to the Corinthians, "...give none offense, neither to the Jew, the Gentile, nor to the church of God." That church is the new man. Before God, the Gentile is not brought up to the status of the Jew. He's actually brought up higher. And Chrysostom made this statement, and my, this is a wonderful statement. Will you listen to it? He does not mean that he has elevated us to that high dignity of theirs, but he has raised both us and them to one still higher. I will give you an illustration. Let us imagine that there are two statues, one of silver, the other of lead, and then that both shall be melted down and the two shall come out gold. So thus, he has made the two one. I think that's a marvelous illustration that we've been brought together in Christ. May I say to you, I do not believe in the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. To me, that's a damnable heresy. Forgive me for saying it, but that's what it is. I believe the brotherhood are those that are in Christ. Now, a man may have a skin as white as the driven snow. And if he's not a child of God, he's not my brother. I don't care what you say. He's not my brother. But that man may have a skin that's as black as midnight. And if he's a child of God, he's my brother. Now, you can't escape that. We're something new. <laughs> We're in Christ a new man. And this is the building, the temple that God is building today. And it might therefore be more accurate to say that the Jews been brought down to the level of the Gentile as both are in the same state of sin. Because all of us are brothers actually as sinners, as sons of Adam. Because Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they're all under sin. That's the state we're in. Now, the peace referred to is between Jew and Gentile. When the Jew and Gentile come to the cross of sinners, they're made into a new creation, a new man, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Old Testament temple 
which succeeded the Mosaic tabernacle was marked by partitions. There were three entrances into the three departments, outer court, holy place, holy of holies. Then there were sections partitioned off for priests, for Israel, for women and Gentiles. Now Christ, by his death, he took out the veil, and he became the way, the truth, and the life, so that you go through Christ and come directly to God. And those who come to him are removed from their little department and are placed in Christ, the new temple, where there are no departments. The cross dissolves the fences, and the gospel is preached to the Gentiles and to Jews. What a picture we have here. Now, verse 18, "...for through him," that is Christ, "...we both have access in one spirit to the Father." I wonder if you've noted that this little verse here is a big verse. It's like a little atom. It has in it the Trinity. Notice it. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father, and that's God the Father. You see, Jew and Gentile at the cross are not only on the same footing as sinners, but through Christ they both have equal access to God which is a glorious privilege for any human being. And that's one of the things Paul says in the fifth of Romans, that are the benefits of justification by faith. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful. Now, I don't think you can rush in a brazen way into the presence of God, but it's a real privilege to have access through the Lord Jesus Christ into the Father. And I don't care who the humblest believer is, he has as much access as the Pope at Rome, as the President of the World Council of Churches, and as Vernon McGee has. You have as much right. And that's the reason that I asked people on the radio when I had cancer, I said, pray for me. And I still have it, and I still say to folk, remember me in prayer. I've had several folks say, why did you ask everybody to pray? Why didn't you just ask some folks? Because I think every believer has access to God, my friend. I believe in the priesthood of believers, that we all have access to him. This is the marvelous thing about this new building that we're talking about. Now we have the meaning of the construction here, verses 19 through 22, here in this second chapter of Ephesians. I'm reading now, and if you've noted, last time and this time I've been reading directly from my book, my own translation, which I do not recommend. This is the Megitus ad absurdum translation. And all I'm doing is bringing out the literal. Listen, now therefore, you are no more strangers and sojourners, that is, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, Paul reminds here the Gentile believers that though they were strangers and they were alienated from God, their present position is infinitely bettered. They are no more strangers and sojourners. They're fellow citizens with the saints. And saints is not a reference here to Old Testament saints. They're fellow citizens with the New Testament saints. They are the members of the body of Christ. And they belong to a household, not as servants but relatives. That is, we're members of the family of God. We're his dear little children. Listen to John, so lovely, in 1 John 2.12. 
I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. We're little children. (laughs) This is a new relationship, a relationship that was foreign to the Old Testament. Even David, the man after God's own heart, he is called my servant David, 2 Samuel 7, 8. Moses was called Moses, God's servant, Numbers 12, 7. And now their citizenship is not in Israel and in the earthly Jerusalem, but it's in heaven, for our citizenship is in heaven. Whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3.20. And you see, we are fellow citizens. We belong to heaven now. And the word conversation, you see, in the authorized version is rightly changed to citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, notice this. This is important. It does not mean that the apostles and prophets were the foundation. But they personally laid the foundation because we read that the early church was built on the doctrine upon that which the apostles were teaching. In Acts 2.42, right at the day of Pentecost, it says that group that were brought into the church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And much has been written about the identity of the prophets. Are they Old Testament prophets here, New Testament prophets? The fact that the prophets are in the same classification as apostles without the article V would seem to designate them, I think, as New Testament prophets. And I think that you will find this confirmed when we get in the third chapter here. Now, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone... And that reveals that Christ is the rock on which the church is built. Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And Peter put it like this, Wherefore also it's contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded, Unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, the important thing to note here is that Peter says that the Lord Jesus is that chief cornerstone. He is that rock on which the church is built. And therefore, Peter understood when the Lord Jesus said to him, I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's the rock on which the church is built. And the apostles and prophets put down that foundation, by the way, which is that Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the rock on which the church is built. He's the foundation. Now, verses 21 and 22, "...in whom every building fitly framed together is growing unto a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being builded together for a habitation that is a permanent temple of God in the Spirit." Now, again, the analogy here is to the temple of the Old Testament. 
And the Old Testament ritual, I think, is obvious here. Yet the contrast is revealed in the analogy. There were, for instance, several buildings in the temple at Jerusalem, and I don't think Paul is referring to the different buildings. He means each individual believer is fitted into the total structure. And that is the way that Peter expressed it, you remember, that we are stones just fit it in, built upon Christ the rock. Now, Paul speaks of the church as a temple which is currently under construction. And that's quite interesting because in Paul's day, Herod's temple, which was the temple at that time, was unfinished. It had already been, in our Lord's day, 40 years in building, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D., and even at that time it was not completed. Now, the church is under construction today. It'll be finished. And it's being built in a most unusual way. We're told here it's growing unto a holy sanctuary. Now, that reveals that it's unfinished. And the structure's being built differently. You don't put one stone on top of another in a cold way. This temple is growing. And God is taking dead material, dead in trespasses and sins, gives it life, born again, and now it's growing into a living temple. As Solomon's temple was built without the sound of the hammer, so the Holy Spirit silently places each dead sinner through regeneration and baptism into the living temple. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit, that's 1 Corinthians 12:13, And it's called a holy sanctuary. It's holy because the Holy Spirit indwells it. And by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the saved sinner is placed in the Lord. And the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. We're told that. But ye are not in the flesh, Paul says, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That's Romans 8, 9. Now, it's a habitation. That is a permanent temple of God in the Spirit. When believers come together in a building to worship, the Holy Spirit is present. And in that sense, God's in that building. But when each believer leaves the building, it's empty. God's not in any church building today any more than He's in any bar room. Today, God indwells believers, not buildings. Actually, God has never dwelt in any building made with hands. Listen to Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I build in. It's a pagan philosophy which places God in a human-made structure. The purpose of the church as a temple is to reveal the presence and glory of God on earth. When believers assemble together in a church, the impression should be made upon the world, even in this age, that God's in His holy temple. The world should feel that God can be found in a church service. But my question is, can He today? And I'm sorry if I seem like I'm criticizing, but my friends, the world is not sure God's meeting with folk today. I'm sure that there'd be a great many more there if they were sure God was present. Now, we come to chapter 3. 
and the church is a mystery. This is the last chapter in which we see here the doctrinal side. We go to the practical side in the next chapter. But now the church is a mystery. And in the first four verses, we have the explanation of the mystery. 5 through 13, the definition of the mystery. And then we have this second great prayer here, 14 through 21, prayer for power and knowledge. Now, I'd like to say a preliminary word in the few moments that are left for chapter 3 here. What do we mean when we say the church is a mystery? And there's a great deal of misunderstanding as to that. And there are two extreme viewpoints that have been made in our day, and these viewpoints, they are very much a mystery to me. That was not the intention of the apostle, to make it that kind of a mystery. The word for mystery bears no resemblance, by the way, to this modern connotation of who done it. We're not talking here at all about Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie. Rather, it's something that had not previously been revealed, but it's currently made manifest. Now, in this case, it's the church, which was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is solely a revelation of the New Testament. Now, Moffat translates the word mystery by divine secret. Weymouth uses the word truth. I like the expression divine secret. It was a divine secret. And a divine secret was something that God has not revealed up to a certain point. Now he's going to reveal it. We've been over this before when we saw the mystery in the first chapter. Now, there are two extreme groups. One group ignores the clear-cut statement of Paul that the church is not a revelation of the Old Testament. They treat the church as a continuation of Israel in the Old Testament, and they appropriate all the promises that God made to Israel. Dr. Ironside showed me a Bible that he had years ago in his study, and back in the Old Testament, it had at the top the subjects, and it says, blessings for the church. It was really in the prophets, it was for Israel. Blessings for the church. Then they came to another page, and he showed it to me. It says, curses for Israel. It's quite interesting. The church took the blessings, but left the curses for Israel. But the interesting thing, both belong to Israel. And this other group, they place undue emphasis upon Paul's statement. He made known unto me the mystery, and my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. They treat the mystery as the peculiar revelation of Paul. And I'm going to show that's inaccurate. As a result, there has been the pernicious practice of shifting the beginning of the church to some date after Pentecost. And on this sliding scale, several dates have been suggested. And when one becomes untenable, why, well, they adopt another one. This group has probably been after me more and fought me more than any other group in Southern California. When anyone says, I'm a hyper-dispensationalist, they must be wrong, because the hyper-dispensationalists probably fought me more than any other individual in this area. And I'm glad for it, because I think that a man's known by the enemies he makes. If you want to know what position I hold, ask the liberal in Southern California, and ask the hyper-dispensationalists, and ask those who are not conforming their lives to the Word of God and don't like Bible study. And I like my enemies. They tell a great deal about me, by the way. And so, these are two extreme positions. But we believe that there's something quite wonderful here, and we'll see this next time. 
And isn't that just the way you do it in a mystery story? It's continued next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. If you'd like to slow down and spend more time in this wonderful book, then I highly recommend you download our Bible Companion for Ephesians. If you want to get your free copy, visit ttb.org. It's also a great resource to study the book of Ephesians together with a small group. And if you haven't gotten Dr. McGee's notes and outlines for Ephesians, then you're going to want to download those as well. You can visit ttb.org forward slash briefing the Bible to get them online or purchase a copy for your Kindle on Amazon. Or if you listen by app, click on the menu button to access them anytime. And if God's teaching you something new as we travel through his word together, you know we'd love to hear from you. Your story really does matter to us. So share it by writing to box 7100. Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325. London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. You can always email us as well at BibleBus at ttb.org. And you can also leave a message with your story when you call 1-800-65-BIBLE. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll meet you back here next time as we continue this wonderful journey through the Bible. Our journey on the Bible bus today is supported by the prayers and gifts of fellow passengers as we travel through the Bible.